Like I said, this is 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1. You can follow along up here behind me, or if you want to turn there in your copy of the scriptures, this is uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes in. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. We believe that this is God's word. And therefore that it is valuable. It's authoritative. It's perfect. And it's worth listening to. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word this evening. Father, we come before you this evening as men and women who who feel lowly sometimes, who feel needy, who feel hungry. As we look at your word, as we think and and ponder and try to decide how to wisely follow you, how to make our way in the world, sometimes we can feel insignificant. Sometimes we can feel the weight of our guilt and shame from sin. God, you have purposed in your infinite wisdom to bring us here on this day to look at this word, And I pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would help us to understand what you want for us to understand, that you would send your spirit upon each one of these students to help them to to grasp what it is that you uh, that what you want us to know about you. You would help us all to understand more of your grace and mercy, more of your love and forgiveness that is available in your son, Jesus. Pray that you would help us to see your holiness, your righteousness and the ways that you call us to try to be like you. Lord, you are good and kind and merciful. I pray that as you send your spirit upon each of these students to soften their hearts, to open their ears and eyes, that you would also send your spirit upon me to enable me to talk about these things in a way that is good and true and helpful. I pray that you would bless your word tonight, that you would bless 
this passage and in our study of it that you would help us to understand what you want us to understand. Uh, Lord, I pray for all these students that you provide for them and bless them in every way. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. In the year 2005, there was a Canadian blogger named Kyle McDonald. And he put an ad on Craigslist for a red paperclip. He said, I have a red paperclip. Uh, it's available. Trade me whatever you think is fair for this red paperclip. This was 2005. It was like the beginning eras of Craigslist. So uh, people like were interested. People, people kind of like jumped in on this. He traded it for a pen. Someone responded and said, I have a pen, and I'll trade you the paperclip for this pen. And he traded the pen for an interesting hand-sculpted doorknob. And he traded the doorknob for a camp stove that you could, you know, like you take camping. And so on and so forth. And he had at different times, like there's, a, there's this whole like chain of trades that Kyle made. He had at different times a, a Honda generator, like a, like a power generator that you could power your house with. He had a box truck. He traded that for like a recording contract with a record studio. And eventually, he received the contract for a Hollywood film, like to, someone to appear in a film in Hollywood. He traded for that, which he then traded that contract for a the deed to a two-story house in Kipling, Saskatchewan. So Kyle McDonald, this is a true story, through the unlikeliest of beginnings, through a single red paper clip, he was able to trade his way up the ladder to become a homeowner, homeowner just by asking people to trade. Right? Like It's pretty unlikely. You would look at... This paperclip, and you would not imagine that it had that value, but Kyle was able to flip that. This passage shows off for us one of the many places in Scripture where God works through very unlikely ways, even less likely than trading a paperclip for a house. The unlikeliest candidate to be king is chosen to be king. The unlikeliest person, the unlikeliest means, the unlikeliest ways that God could work, in this passage he's deciding to work. Some of you tonight might feel like unlikely people to be followers of Jesus. Maybe you feel like uh, unlikely people to come and be a part of a Christian ministry, or unlikely people to, to be people who know God and to follow him. Maybe you feel like you might be unlikely people to be a part of a community that is loved and known. But what I want you to see tonight um, is that, that God works through unlikely ways. Because God accomplishes salvation— In very unlikely ways, you can have confidence. You can have confidence in what God's doing. You can have confidence in, most importantly, in Jesus. And there are two ways, there are two ways in this passage that we see God doing something unlikely, interacting with unlikely people. The first is we see that God chooses the unlikely. God chooses someone who's very unlikely to be the king. And secondly, that God blesses the unlikely. So first, God chooses the unlikely. God also blesses the unlikely. I feel like I'm saying unlikely a lot, but it's, I just want to hammer home just how, like, you know, we read this and we're like, well, yeah, of course David's going to be king. We know the story. But to people who are reading this, to people who are hearing this for the first time back in the day, this would have been very shocking and surprising to them. So first off, God chooses the unlikely. Last week we talked about the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 8 demanding that God give them a king. Essentially trading in God as their Lord and King for a pagan king, just like all the other nations. That's what we talked about last week. And that happens. Uh, God chooses Samuel to be, or God tells Samuel to uh, anoint Saul. 
He chooses a guy named Saul to be king, and Saul very quickly proves himself to be a king just like all the other nations. On the outside, he looks the part. He's strong, wealthy, charismatic, but his character of heart is lacking. He rejects God. He rejects God's law. He doesn't listen. And he leads Israel into spiritual disaster. Right? He'd become just like the kings of all the nations around Israel. He's worshiping in the wrong ways. He's ignoring God. He's not relying upon God's grace and mercy. And so God rejects him. God says, I'm not going to like let you be king over Israel. Your descendants are not going to be kings over Israel. And Samuel, at the beginning of this passage, is mourning over that. He's weeping over that. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Samuel is grieving and mourning over this. But in the midst of this, God tells him, all right, like, that's enough. I've got a guy. I've got a guy for you. Go to Bethlehem. God is saying, I'm not going to let this wicked king remain as the king, as the only person to protect and shepherd and lead and watch over my people. God says, I'm going to send you to Bethlehem. He says, I have provided for myself a king among the sons of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And he sends him to Bethlehem and Samuel goes. And the people there, they see him coming and they're worried. They see, they know about Saul's beef with Samuel. They're worried that, honestly, that just this exact thing might happen. They're like, if Saul finds out that Samuel is like raising up another claimant to the throne, Saul might just come in and like have us all killed. And so Samuel alleviates their fears. He says, yeah, we're, we, we've come to worship the Lord. There's going to be a sacrifice. And he invites the elders of the village. And he specifically invites Jesse and his family, right? Because God had said that the next king would be someone from that family. And so, you know, there's, it's unclear. It's unlikely that um, anyone really was in on what was going on. Like Jesse probably doesn't know what's happening. His sons don't really know what's happening. Samuel's just like, all right. Bring your sons in and, and like, let me see them, essentially. And so Jesse does. And the first one uh, in, in order right, is the firstborn. And Samuel sees him. He looks on Eliab and he thinks, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel sees this guy, Eliab, tall, strong, good looking. He's like, yeah, this is obviously the king. This is obviously the guy. Samuel's practically already anointing him when God says no. No, that's not who it's going to be. God's rejected Eliab from being king because God sees his heart. Right? According to the world, according to sort of a non-spiritual way of looking at things, Eliab's the, the obvious candidate. He's the oldest, which means in this culture, like all of his brothers have to look up to him and kind of follow him. It means he's already a leader. It means he, he already has connections and influence He's experienced. He knows the ways of the world. Eliab is the guy who, like, if, if you were, like, picking a future king out of the lineup, you'd be like, oh, yeah, Eliab, obviously. But no, God says, not him. God has rejected Eliab from being king because God sees his heart. Right? It shows us that God values the contents of our hearts. It's not like being a Christian, following Jesus is not just about, like, external things. It's not just about doing the right thing or putting up the right front or face. It's all about the heart. And so on. God goes on to reject each one of Jesse's sons, from Abinadab to Shammah to the other four, until there's none left. Like, all seven of them, they're all rejected. God says no to all of them. 
And at this point, like Samuel could have easily been confused. He could have easily said, God, what are you doing? Like you told me that there was a king among this family. Are you kidding me? Like you said you'd choose a king from among these sons and kind of like started a doubt. But instead, I love Samuel's faith here. Samuel trusts God and asks Jesse, okay, where's your other son? Like, are there any more sons? He doesn't question his circumstances. He questions, like, he's like, okay, there must be a, a piece to this puzzle that I'm missing. And sure enough, right, God, Samuel trusts God's promises. He trusts his plan, and he's right. There is another son, the littlest, the baby brother. The, the word here, um, uh, there yet remains the youngest in verse 11. Uh, Jesse, Jesse's response to Samuel, the word there is like the word for, like, baby brother. Like the, little, the littlest teeny baby brother. Teeny tiny baby boy. Um, that's the one who's left, the teeny tiny baby. Um, but Samuel wants him to see him anyway. right? This guy is so insignificant, he's not even named until verse 13. Like His name doesn't appear in the passage until the very end. Not only that, he's so insignificant that he's not invited to the like special meal where the prophet is going to be like preparing a sacrifice. Like surely Jesse would be like, oh man, it's a great opportunity to like meet Samuel and to like see the way that the prophet like acts. This is a great opportunity to learn about the Lord. But David, you know, you're little, like you probably can't understand it, so we're gonna leave you out in the fields. Like you're good, David. You don't need to be there. Go tend the sheep. That's how insignificant David is. That's how unimportant he is. That's, how, that's why it's unlikely that he would be a candidate to be king. And yet, when Samuel sees David, God tells him, that's the one. This is my guy. This is the one who's going to be king. God has chosen David, the least likely candidate for king. What, why? Why might God choose this person? I mean, apart from, like, it's just God's delight and pleasure to choose the people who he knows are the right person for the job. You also see throughout the Old Testament that, that God almost always uh, doesn't let his people have the delusion that they can save themselves. I mentioned, like, uh, Israel's battle strategy last week. Like, is, their battle strategy is always something that, like, on the outside looks stupid. Like, there's this one battle in the Old Testament where the Israelites are about to face off against an enemy, and God gives them this battle plan, which is basically, hey, have Moses stand on the hill, and as long as he can raise his arms up, y'all will win. Like, that doesn't have any military sense. Because the point of it is for God to show the Israelites that he's the one who saves them. Right? He always sends leaders and, and he works deliverance and salvation in some way where it's clear that the power belongs to God, not to us. Paul writes about this dynamic in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. He says, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's not going to let his people boast in themselves. So, he picks David, this runt, this youngest, the least likely candidate. He uses unlikely and foolish things because he wants us to know that we're dependent upon him. Right? If you think about that, like you are dependent on a host of things that are outside of your control. Like physically, your bodies need food and water, amongst other things. Your minds need sleep. You need rest. 
you need that there's like a complex web of things that you don't have control over and that you can't like even necessarily name all of them that you depend upon for your lives. What the Bible says is that that's true spiritually as well. It's not just true physically. You are dependent upon sources and powers outside of your control, and in some cases outside of your senses, for your life. Right? In this passage, and with every unlikely circumstance that God uses, he's telling us that we are dependent upon him as well. Like, David is not scheming his way up to the throne. God just says, you're the guy. You're the king. Right? God is telling us that we are dependent upon him, which is actually very good, because the whole sort of crux of sin, the whole origin of sin and wickedness is believing the lie that we do not need God, that you do not need God. That is the, the source of sin, right? It leads to destruction, to the, delusion, to the delusion that we must or that we even can be self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency is the original sin, the sin that Adam and Eve have in the garden. When they, they believe the lie of the serpent, they say, okay, yeah, I can decide for myself what's right and wrong without God. And from that moment, sin came into the world. A few weeks ago, we went to the movie theater and we watched a movie called Iron Claw. Um, I, I want to give a content warning. It's really heavy. It's very sad. I saw a Letterboxd review that said it was the feel-bad movie of the year, and it was right. Um, it was really well made and acted, but it's like it's really heavy, so you're forewarned. Uh, and it's about the Von Erich family. It's based on a true story. And Kevin Von Erich, who was one of these five brothers who wrestle, like they were professional wrestling in the 80s, um, he, he has this little line in it. He says, ever since I was a child, people said my family was cursed. Dad tried to protect us with wrestling. He said that if we were the toughest, if we were the strongest, that nothing could ever hurt us. If we were the toughest, if we were the strongest, nothing could ever hurt us. Um, that's the essence of self-reliance, of self-sufficiency, of, of, I mean, of delusional self-sufficiency. And over the course of the movie, right, that sounds good. Like, oh yeah, if you're strong, then you can protect yourself. But over the course of the movie, and also in real life, this happened, their dads, to, like, sort of pressure and demands for them to be strong and self-sufficient leads to health issues, depression, and death for a ton of people in their family. It destroys their family. Instead of protecting them, their pursuit of self-sufficiency and self-reliance destroyed them. Right? The self-reliance this family was looking for in order to save them tore them to shreds. And in a similar way, if you try to live your life apart from God, if you try to live your life on your own saying, I'm going to take care of myself, I don't need God to take care of me, you will feel that destruction too. Right? God chooses unlikely things to accomplish his purposes. Right? Strength, outwards appearance, these are, these are things that the world values and cherishes, but God works in different ways. Right? If, if God had just chosen Eliab, if he had allowed Eliab to be the guy, a lot of people would just say, oh, well, like, yeah, he's the king because he looks like a king. He became king under his own strength. He deserves to be king. But God comes and chooses David even when it was unlikely. One pastor writes about this passage. Uh, election into God's purposes isn't by popular vote. Election by, into God's purposes isn't based on proven ability or potential promise. God wants the average and ordinary and sinful and broken and weak person to be involved in his kingdom. And he chooses David. He chooses him to come in and to be a part. Right? Um, and, and this points ahead, right, to the 
an even more unlikely salvation that God works for his people. The power of God, the power of the second person of the Trinity, who is present in creation, infinite in eternity past and eternity future, right? he was born as a baby in a manger. That's pretty unlikely. And not only that, he wasn't born as a king or a prince or a nobleman. He was born the son of a carpenter, an artisan, a member of the working class. Right? He, he, God never wants it to be in doubt that we are dependent upon him. Right? He, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, a backwater. Like, not, not New York or a Chicago, but like, you know, like a, like a Waynesboro or a Millen. I don't know. No offense if you're from those areas. I'm from a backwater too. But like, like not the place that you would expect a savior to be coming from. David also, is being, he's being born on the margins, and yet God brings these people in because he wants the glory for himself. He wants none of us to make the mistake and say, well, we can figure it out ourselves. right? And if that's true, if, if it's all up to God, if it's God's grace and mercy that is saving his people, if it's, if it's that we're dependent upon God, then that means that you can be really confident. You can be confident in who Jesus is for you. You can be confident in the life that God has given you. Right? If he's the one who's choosing, if he's the one that we are dependent upon, then nothing can touch you. What can separate you from him? If he's the one who is choosing, if he's the one who is grabbing on to David, if he's the one who is working salvation on his own for his people. right? He sent his son Jesus to do all these things of his own volition, of his own accord, to live the life for you and for me, to take the punishment for our sins upon himself. And so if you, if you believe in Jesus, right, like, then that is true for you. You can never be separated from God. This is such a surprise, and it's, it's actually unique among the religions of the world and the ways of looking at the world. Every other way that you can look at the world says, uh, if you want to get ahead, you need to try harder. You need to do more. You need to be more. Be all that you can be. Try harder. Excel. Crush it. It's all on you. Give 110%. Jesus says something different. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What God is calling us to hear and what God is showing us through the choosing of David is that he's not just calling the strong and the smartest to be a part of his kingdom. He's calling the weak, the unlikely. Anyone who receives him, like we talked about last semester in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so if you're here and you... you you recognize that, that you're poor in spirit, that you're empty, that you need someone or something to help you. Like the kingdom of God is for you. And God promises you blessing. Which brings me to my second point, that, that God blesses the unlikely. It's not just the, he chooses the unlikely, he blesses the unlikely. So after God chooses David, he, he tells Samuel, all right, anoint this guy. He's going to be the king. He's going to be the next king. Samuel anoints him. He pours oil over his head. And then something even more amazing happens. It says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. Right? So God has not only chosen David, but he's also blessed him with the outward and inward power and qualifications to be king and to accomplish what God has called him to do. He's not just saying, all right, David, you go to this thing. He's anointed him. Anointing with oil in the Old Testament is a, is a ritual, a symbolic ritual that would happen um, that essentially was uh, someone being set apart for a particular office, for a particular job that God had set aside for them. 
Um, it's almost always specifically in the context of God choosing someone either to be a priest or a king, to, to fulfill some role for his people. Um, this is, you can think of it almost as like the, the certificate, the badge, or the, the identification card saying, yes, this is the king. God's, Samuel has uh, been sent by God to anoint David, and this is the external sign and symbol that David is to be the next king. He's given a badge of authority. David's the guy. He has the credentials. David is the heir. He's the next king of Israel because God has put this anointing upon him. But it's not just giving him the right credentials or qualifications. He's also giving him power and ability, not on his own, but he's sending his spirit to rest upon him. Right? It says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Holy Spirit, God sends the Holy Spirit to David to give him the wisdom and authority and ability and gifts and skill to be the king. So it's not just that God chooses the unlikely person, but blesses them and endows them and, and strengthens them with all ability to actually accomplish the things that God sends them to do. That's what he's done with David, right? And interesting, it's interesting that neither of these things involve David deciding. Like I said earlier, at no point in this does David be like, yeah, I'm going to be king, like up to this point. David has no part in engineering his rise to power, right? He, He's not meeting with Samuel and Jesse, like, scheming in the back room about how he's going to become king. God just decides and then blesses him with the proper credentials and power. He says, you are going to be the king, and I'm going to be with you and help you and strengthen you to do it. And and by the way, that doesn't leave him, right? Like, this is a continuous, forward-looking thing. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of God is with David. And so God blesses David, but not just David. Through David's kingship, God is also going to bless his people. He's going to bless the broader people of God, right? Even though they have rejected God, they've served Saul. They've called for a king, they rejected God. And they've served Saul and and followed in his ways, who also rejected God. And yet God is still deciding to bless his people by sending them a good king, sending them the right king, sending them David. God blesses an unlikely people even by sending this king to make things better. Just like David was anointed with oil, the Bible says, uh, I'm sure you'll pick up on this, I'm going to be a lot of, uh, making a lot of parallels between David and Jesus, because the Bible itself makes these parallels. The Bible calls Jesus the son of David. He's David's greater son. There's a lot of parallels, and I think they're intentional. I know they're intentional, because the Bible says that they are. Right? As David was anointed with oil, the Bible says that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's the son of God, he's sent by God, but also set apart for the work that God sent him to do. Some of y'all may have heard the term Messiah for Jesus. The word Messiah just means anointed one. Um, Jesus was also anointed, given credentials by God to perform a particular ministry for his people, to be the savior of the world, the sacrifice for sins, but also the king of the universe. It was God's plan to send Jesus to take upon himself the the sins of the world and to give his righteousness and his inheritance as the Son of God an heir to the kingdom of God to anyone who believes in him, for all who believe. This blessing is unlikely in its greatness. Like, you and I don't deserve that. And yet God, because of his love and mercy and grace, has poured it out for us. He invites us into that blessing. It's not just that we get to be saved, right, and now uh, sort of exist as people of God, just sort of like going about our own business. But he loves us so much 
that he wants to not only save us, but also invite us into the labor that he's doing. Right? He, he chooses David, he blesses him and calls him to a particular purpose and gives him the spirit of the Lord to go and to minister. In a similar way, he invites us into a similar sort of ministry. Not the exact same, right? Like, we're not going to be kings. But to work in his field, to labor in his workshop alongside him, to enter the arena in which God is at work. Right? Hearing that, you might feel like an unlikely candidate for someone to do ministry. I want to be careful uh, when I'm saying ministry. I'm not meaning like that you have to go and work in vocational ministry. But if you know Jesus and you're following Jesus, it's not optional. He has called you to be a blessing to people around you and to show other people around you the love of Jesus. Right? In actuality, all of life for the Christ follower is ministry and service, whether to God or to others. There's different sorts, there's different varieties, but God is inviting you not just to know him, but to participate in the work that he's doing. Um, I figured I would talk a little bit, you know, thinking through this idea of being unlikely people to do ministry. Uh, this might surprise some of y'all. I never wanted to do ministry. If you had asked me, like pretty much at any point in college, uh, being a pastor, being a minister would have been probably the last on the list of vocations that I would have picked for myself. Like it was not something that was on my radar at all. Um, I was a history major with a Chinese minor. Some fun facts about old Nathaniel. And, uh, but I think the real reason why I never wanted to do ministry, like I was involved with RUF and I, I led small groups and stuff, but I just felt like it was too much pressure. It was like, that's what really special, like uber-competent, mature Christian people do. Like, I, that's not me. I can't do that. Seems like a lot of pressure. Um, that's kind of was my attitude. And so I wanted to go to grad school for history. I had all these other plans. Um, and the... Spring semester of my senior year, Christmas break to spring semester, spring semester of my senior year, God just like ripped all those plans for shreds. Like he, I got rejected from every grad school that I uh, applied to. I had a really difficult breakup. Uh, there's just a lot of really hard things. And in the midst of it, my campus minister had kind of said, hey, like, I think you'd be good at uh, doing the REF internship. You should check that out. Um, and so I was like, you know, I don't have anything else to do. I don't have anything else going on in my life. Um, and so I applied for the REF internship. I got accepted. I got placed at the University of Houston in Texas. I worked as an intern there. And within like a few months, I loved it. I fell in love with ministry. And not only that, I felt like I was like in a weird way, even though I had like never, I had not wanted to do it for so long, so passionately, I had not wanted to do ministry. After doing it, something within me, I felt like that I was made to do this. Um, at that moment, I don't think that I was qualified. I don't think that I was equipped to do it. But God was really kind to me and chose someone unlikely to do ministry. Right? Again, like I said, uh, I'm not saying that you guys should all go and do vocational ministry. But what I am saying is that no matter how unlikely you feel like you might make an impact in someone else's life, if you are following Jesus, if you know Jesus, he is not giving you the option. Like, he is calling you to minister, to give back, to be a blessing to other people. And most importantly, to reflect his glory and love and grace to others. God is bringing you alongside himself and preparing you to be a blessing to people around you. Like, in the same way that the effectualness, the same way that it actually works, is the same way that it happened with David. That he sends the spirit of the Lord upon you to make it work. In Psalm 16, one of my favorite psalms, the psalmist writes, 
um, God, you're my God. I have no part. I have no good apart from you. Like that's true for all of us. If we have good in us, it's something that God has given us. But that actually is really freeing, because it means that you can try your best and trust God with the result. I think that's really encouraging. I hope, that, I hope that's encouraging to you. God works through unlikely ways to save people. He chooses unlikely people to be a part of his kingdom. He blesses unlikely people with unlikely blessings that are unlikely in their greatness and magnitude. No matter where you're coming from, if you feel like you're an unlikely person to to receive these things, like maybe you have a past that you feel ashamed of. Maybe you think about ways that that other people need help and you feel too awkward or like you can't, you, you feel shy, you don't feel like you can actually interact or engage with other people the way that you want to. Maybe there's a part of you that feels like you're not that valuable to God or others. But whatever these things that might make you feel unlikely, um, like I want you to see that God chooses the people that he loves. And he chooses people, he calls people, regardless of how likely they are, to be a part of his kingdom he saves his people in unlikely ways, and that's the glory of the gospel. That the sinner, the weak person, the broken person, the weary, the tired, the poor in spirit, they get into the kingdom. They get into God's kingdom. They get accepted, they get loved, and they get given the kingdom. Right? And if you believe this, then, then know that God has chosen you, no matter how unlikely it might be. And there's nothing that you can do to... Turn back God's love from you. If it is true that, that he saves the unlikely, then you can be confident in what he's doing in your life. You can be confident that he has loved you, he has blessed you, he's called you to himself. And that's good news. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus, who lived an unlikely life, an unexpected ministry, and whose end would be unlikely if anyone in the world was imagining what uh, the founder of a religion's life would look like. And yet, Lord, you sent your son Jesus to die the death that we deserved, to receive the just punishment at the cross, and to give us forgiveness and hope and love and joy. God, I pray that you would bless these students, that you would help us to grasp and believe and understand these things, that you would make them more real in our lives, and that you would lead us in paths of joy and truth and hope. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.